Thank you very much. Um, I, um, I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about the past and the future of the um, civil society groups working on human rights governance issues in the North and the South. Um, I think uh, prior to that, responding to um, uh, what uh, Professor Sandra Hale was saying, I draw your attention to what I think is quite an incredible report, which was written, I think, in 1984 or 5 um, by Ushari Mahmoud and Suleiman Baldo. It was a report which was about uh, the massacre of um, about a thousand Dinka in Udayim in South Darfur. It's, I think, one of the, one of the best, and actually best illustrated, uh, human rights reports that I've, I've ever read. Uh, it's available online, and I, I think it, it starts with a very powerful introduction which I can't quote because of the quotes on my computer, but it talks um, about the role of intellectuals in addressing uh, the atrocities uh, uh, committed uh, in Sudan. So I think perhaps that's perhaps the role, uh, particularly in Sudan, a potential role for, for um, civil society. But frankly, um, I'm talking about civil society, sometimes I think that in the case of the North, one's talking about an endangered species, and in the case of the South, that one's talking about a, you know, a species that's embryonic. And I want to talk a little bit about why that's the case. Um, we, we're, at the moment, we are, in a sense, I think, well, many people are already celebrating, certainly in South Sudan, um, one of what may be the successes of the CPA, which is a, a successful referendum process. Um, and I think to look back, one of the failures of the CPA has been the failure to really um, to, to sustain and to have a proper process of democratic transformation, which is envisaged in the CPA, um, but has been, I think, um, undermined. Um, neglected, and even in the case, I would say, of the political position in the North, um, really was an only a process which they chose to take up and engage with in, in the last um, year and a few months. And um, perhaps uh, that is one of the reasons why we are going to have a very, see a very perhaps rocky time in Sudan in the future in relation to human rights. And why do I think that human rights is important? I mean, I was told um, a couple of years ago when I sort of raised the issue of democratic transformation when I was in Darfur with a Dutch diplomat that, that civil society was a luxury that the Sudanese couldn't afford. Um, but I, I think it's important, part of the reasons that um, um, uh, Pro Professor Sandra Hale talks about of addressing the past and also trying to transform uh, the present and carry Sudanese into the future. I think one of the um, challenges, I think, for both uh, North and South Sudan, uh, which they will inherit from Sudan, but in both cases, is trying to address their diversity. And of course, this has been one of the, I guess, the failures which has resulted in the referendum results. And um, it's not going to be, it will continue to be a challenge for um, uh, uh, South Sudan and for North Sudan. So trying to actually broaden participation, trying to actually uh, 
whether it's politically or in terms of bringing on board different communities, this is a role for civil society. And of course, in the case of the South, uh, there is a huge amount of nation building that, um, that has to be done, just in terms of things like adopting legislation, trying to develop a vision of, of the future. Um, I think what's striking at the moment, I mean, in a sense, the referendum is um, quite incredible in the sense that people went out, you know, millions of people went out and, and voted. This was a, a process which, uh, where, which was led by people, at least in theory. And um, what's striking is if one looks at the post-referendum negotiations, which are, have been ongoing since July last year, uh, these are negotiations which look at you know, critical issues uh, for the future of Sudan, um, the whole issue of uh, wealth sharing, which was addressed by Harry Verhoeven, the issue of citizenship. I mean, at the moment, who, who, who is going to be a, who is going to get citizenship in the north and the south? The NCP's position is, um, as I understand, that anybody who is eligible, who is eligible to vote in the referendum. Uh, that doesn't, that's i.e. not just including people who registered and voted, will have to be Southern Sudanese. And uh, the position of the SPLM, I think, it is, is less clear, but I think, generally speaking, the sort of, the, the reaction is very much to go back to the whole issue of using ethnicity in order to define who's a Southerner and who's a Northerner in terms of citizenship. So we have all these, these constitutional issues which are being uh, decided by uh, elites behind closed doors, um, which have very many implications for the adoption of interim and permanent constitutions of these permanent, these, these um, future states, because or the existing states and the future states, because uh, many of the parameters of um, uh, many of the parameters already have been sort of defined and decided through the post-referendum negotiations. Um, on the issue of the, um, the uh, transitional constitutions, um, at the weekend uh, it was reported that um, President Salva Kiir, I think he announced to the South Sudan Legislative Assembly, had appointed a group of technical experts to look at um, the, um, the, the interim constitution of Southern Sudan and to uh, come up with a draft that we presented to the Council of Ministers of the Government of Southern Sudan and later the uh, South Sudan Legislative Assembly to come up with a draft um, which, uh, you know, which will be the interim constitution. Um, no role has been mentioned for uh, civil society. One can argue this isn't an interim constitution, but in Sudan, interim constitutions have a habit of becoming something which has a, a rather longer life. So again, um, it's seen, as I understand it, very much as a cut and paste job. You take out the provisions which relate to the relationship between the North and the South, the mentions of the SPLA, etc. And um, again, we see another potential elite deal, slightly broader, as it involves the SSLA, which is dominated by the SPLM. But many elite deals with no role for the broader population. Looking, if I look a bit, talk a little bit about the North, um, if we go back, uh, the, the process of um, negotiation of uh, uh, the CPA uh, was accompanied by a process of some degree of um, liberalization. 
uh, or I think maybe the better way of putting it is that the, the Sudanese government became slightly less illiberal with regards to the operation of civil society and the media in, the, uh, in Sudan. There were a number of new NGOs which were registered at that point. Um, but this, and this process of liberalization was expected to broaden and deepen with the signing of the CPA. The CPA, as I mentioned, set out not only a, um, uh, did not only just address the issue of uh, the referendum, the relationship between the North and the South, um, it also um, set out a blueprint for state transformation. Um, very good, in many ways, interim national constitution, good bill of rights, but this process of liberalization uh, has not really been supported by genuine legal reform and creation of um, you know, new institutions. Um, if we look, for example, at uh, one of the first laws which was adopted um, after the signing of the CPA, it's something called the Voluntary and Humanitarian Work Act, which regulates the operation of um, associations, Sudanese associations, and also um, the um, international NGOs. If you look at the legislation, it's quite draconian. It um, basically gives very broad powers to uh, government officials to refuse to register organizations, to cancel their res registration, to um, approve uh, funding, including internal funding, and uh, with no judicial, independent judicial review. Um, the Press and Publications Act, which was adopted later, also very problematic in human rights terms. And finally, the, the issue of reform of national security. National security being the National Security Intelligence Service, being the uh, key institution for, I would say, control of um, civil society. Um, the, law, the law which was adopted just over a year ago really perpetuates um, the role of national security and doesn't address the issue of people being detained for long periods uh, without uh, judicial supervision or trial, um, and doesn't really address the broader role of national security, which really control uh, or has infiltrated many aspects of, of public life. So, I would actually say since 2007, the end of 2007, and of course this is related to the, um, the ICC decision um, regarding President Bashir, the, the, the space uh, in the North has actually um, dissipated. Um, yes, there was a narrow sort of liberalization around the April 2010 elections, but that dissipated very quickly um, with the closure of a couple of newspapers and um, the increased uh, harassment of activists. And I think what's particularly worrying is that there seems to be a new trend, um, which is the increased use of uh, criminal law against um, civil society activists who, whose activities are not liked by the authorities. Um, recently there's been three separate cases where criminal law has been used against um, uh, activists from Darfur, uh, from uh, and also uh, a case in Khartoum, and what what that's done is it, it's. If one, I'll give you an example. Um, recently, there was a uh, a um, head of an organisation which had previously been dissolved by the government, um, who 
had been charged with um, uh, with uh, financial mismanagement. He was acquitted due to lack of evidence. And uh, just before Christmas, um, the same judge, uh, without hearing any new evidence, um, sentenced him uh, to one year's imprisonment. He's been released, but he's still a convicted criminal, which effectively means that he can't participate in public life. So it, it seems to be a trend which is more sophisticated, um, but which effectively uh, targets those who are um, uh, involved in, who are somehow seen as being, I guess, dis dissidents. For the future, I think, um, what, for the North, I think civil society is in a very difficult situation because the CPA didn't, and the democratic transformation process hasn't created any buffer uh, that protects activists against the political environment. So the political environment is bad, like at the moment where we have increased um, uh, uh, opposition, uh, to the opposition sort of exploiting the situation of possible um, the secession, uh, the economic uh, crisis, in order to, to really um, attack the government. And it tends to be the, the sort of civil society activists who are more, the most vulnerable and weak who are picked off and used as an example to others. Now, South Sudan. Um, I think what's particularly noticeable in the South is that we've had this process of putative state building, the creation of lots of state institutions at the Bulma, um, Payam, county, state and regional levels, and um, an enormous amount of focus by the international community on A, building up the capacity of the government of Southern Sudan, which is obviously necessary, and at the same time um, also trying to support the delivery of basic services to the population, which is also necessary. I think the question is, um, if one, as one builds a government which is increasingly powerful, has increasing capacity, then um, what is going to counterbalance that? Um, we've heard from um, Marwan Mutat about the whole issue of um, problems of accountability, fiscal accountability, and um, uh, I think what's concerning, I mean, the international community has a very big role, uh, and will have a big role for the future in, in the South, is that there's very little focus, I think, on addressing um, the whole need for accountability um, by, by particularly donors. Um, it's very complicated. I mean, the South, when, generally speaking, there is a huge lack of um, you know, qualified, skilled people. And those people, uh, they can choose, in a sense. And they tend to go into GOS, to go into the UN, to go into international NGOs. Most of the civil society actors from, uh, who were around uh, or uh, in, uh, before the end of the war, they're in government, they're in the UN. And so you have um, mainly young people who are trying or want to do things in relation to the issue of accountability and human rights. And um, they have very few leaders. Um, it's also very difficult because, I mean, this is something very basic, which is South Sudan is an incredibly expensive um, location in which to operate. Um, and, um, you know, 
I've visited uh, associations where it's $400 to rent one room in a building in Juba, and I'm sure the price will go up. Um, but I think also donors have, um, could do more and could also um, uh, could adapt, try to adapt themselves. The problem is that um, Firstly, much of the donor funds have been um, allocated towards supporting civil society for events, for monitoring the elections, monitoring the referendum. The event focus support has helped groups sure, uh, to build themselves as, in, as in, um, has helped them to undertake activities, but it hasn't really helped them to build themselves as institutions. Um, much of the support which has been given to groups has been um, uh, project funding, no core support. Um, in fact, actually, I think the experience shows that this short-term funding tends to increase the number of organisations, promote excessive competitiveness, and encourage groups to go where the money is rather than stick to a narrow and focused annual strategy. People also need to think about the political environment, and I think here again, um, uh, the international community is, could be important. I mean, there's a tendency to sort of focus on the lack of resources of civil society, its lack of capacity. But I think we also have to acknowledge that you know, in an environment where you have a liberation movement, uh, which is in the process of becoming a government, that, um, which is not used to being questioned, um, there are, we, we often focus on the North and the lack of political space in the North, but I think there's also a very, a many questions regarding the South. And um, we saw around the April elections last year uh, a lot of uh, harassment, because the elections were competitive, unlike, unlike the referendum, a lot of harassment of uh, particularly the, the media, as well as um, some politicians. So I think there is, there is hope in the sense that um, you know, one, of the, one of the most sort of vibrant parts of civil society in South Sudan is, is the media and the um, growth of um, community radio, local radio, and uh, the way in which people engage with that is, is you know, quite, quite amazing. Um, I think also the, the elections and the referendum have provided a flat platform for increased visibility of um, uh, CPOs and um, NGOs and um, shown that they do have the capacity to, to work and to uh, educate people, to mobilize them, to provoke debate. So I think in the six years of transition, donors have been understandably devoting their resources largely towards responding to humanitarian prices to recover, addressing the issue of recovery and building GOS. Um, in 2011 and beyond, I think it's important for all of us to think more about supporting Southern Sudanese uh, civil society, to engage the government, and to hold it accountable for the impact of its policies on the population, and perhaps also to address, to be uh, able to carry some of these long-term issues of addressing the abuses and atrocities of the past to uh, uh, find a solution or reconciliation in the future. I think finally that um, uh, this would actually help the government of Southern Sudan 
um, in actually uh, responding to the population and in also to um, uh, 